Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, and welcome to History Rage, the podcast where we get fury out of the background and into the mainstream. The podcast where our historians do not get the luxury of remaining quietly neutral. I am your regular host, Paul Bavel, and I am here... As ever, with my good friend and chief historical dandy, Kyle Glover. Hello. So, Series 7, eh? Yeah. You know what that means, don't you? Yeah, by my count, I reckon that makes us, ooh, we lasted longer than, say, Peaky Blinders. Peaky Blinders. Now, that is some pedigree to outlast yeah. there. Yeah, uh... and we've done more episodes, yeah. and most of their episodes are in slow motion anyway, so there we go. Many people are saying yeah. Many people. Many people, and by many we mean two. Yes, possibly three. If one of our, if one of you out there will agree with us, please we'll make do. us feel better. <laughs> and on that, what better time to go back to series five and listen to Carl Chin's Peaky Blinder Rage? Well, I'll tell you what better time right after you finish this one. So, welcome back to our angry mob. We've got riots, battles, and royal pains in the arse for you over the next ten weeks. But this week, we're diving back into anger with a newcomer to history rage, both in terms of guest and myth. So to start this dive, we welcome US Army historian and author of Romania's Holy War, Dr. Grant T. Howard. Grant, welcome to History Rage. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm ready to get my rage on. Good. Feeling angry? Oh, yes. This this topic infuriates me. Excellent. Excellent. What we want there is some good quality anger, because you can't do British understatement on this podcast. <laughs> But fortunately, are not British. Excellent stuff. So we ask this of everybody that comes on, basically, just uh, because you're a newcomer to me and to Kyle and to a lot of our history rages out there. If you could just give us a little bit of background as to who you are and the work that you do. And my, my one important question really is, as a US Army historian, how the hell do you end up in Romania, of all things? <laughs> Well, it's a long, treacherous road, and just the fact that I'm a historian, I have to give a, a U.S. Army historian, I have to give a bit of a disclaimer. It's kind of official here. So I have to say that uh, all the views expressed here are my own and do not represent those of 
the uh, U.S. Army, U.S. Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. So with that out of the way... Oh, that's because we don't want to piss off the United States Army. I mean, we, you know, we've probably pissed off the RAF and the SAS, but we've got to draw the line somewhere. When when they asked me to speak for them, I will speak for them. But I am not speaking yeah. for the U.S. Army yes. at this, this point. Well, yeah. I, <laughs> yeah, so how, how do you go from U.S. Army to Romania? It's actually the other way around. <laughs> ah, <laughs> right. So uh, I, I got interested in the Romanian Army. Well, I've always been interested in World War II. And military history in general. Uh, and I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And so from 2005, 2007, I uh, served a mission in Romania and, uh, and learned the language, learned, you know, met the people, learned about the culture and came back with this useful skill as a, as a historian, Romanian. Mm-hmm. And so I decided, hey, now that I have this, I'm going to jump in and I can uh, study Romania during World War, World War II and realize like there's very little about Romania, uh, written on this. And so as I was going through my, you know, I did my master's at the University of Edinburgh and then my PhD at the Texas A&M University. And it was while there that I got into a internship or called a graduate mm. research assistantship with the U.S. Army. So kind of all things military being equal, uh, they wanted a military historian, someone who's trained to think that way in that history, and then I kind of jumped into that an internship, kind of got spooled up. I'd done some, you know, any kind of red-blooded American boy. I, you know, studied the U.S. Army, <laughs> as, you know, Civil War stuff, you know, growing up. So, um, you know, basically kind of having to master a new historiography, but uh, still kind of applying those same things about what I learned in my Ph.D. and master's programs about the military to the U.S. Army. And so for the past... Yeah. Four years I've been working first for the Army Medical Department, Center of History and Heritage, and now I'm at the uh, U.S. Army Center of Military History in Washington, D.C. Uh, and so uh, I, I kind of act as a gopher historian. They have book writers, but I'm in the department that people come and, you know, if they have a question, you know, from the headquarters yeah. department of the Army, we try to give them a response. You know, anything from give us, you know, how many generals there were in World War II in the Army to something like, you know, we need some army heroes for the army ball you know get us some names <laughs> so it's, it's yeah. an interesting grab bag of things that you do as a what we call a command historian uh, over for the oh, army that's a good title oh yeah it makes you sound really important yeah, yeah. so that'll try to make up for my <laughs> lack of any kind of interesting accent <laughs> I, have to, I feel like i need a disclaimer for that too you will be listening to this kind of very boring american accent rather than anything kind of uh you know Kind of the New England, exciting, yeah, or like Southern drawl or anything. No, you just get my boring, rather normal American (laughs) accent. That's quite all right. At least we could understand it. This is a great start. (laughs) But I apologize now because having introduced you as a U.S. Army historian, I should have introduced you as a U.S. Army command historian. Yes. (laughs) God, yes. There, there are a few perks, and that's one of them. I'm going to go back to my job tomorrow and go, I'm a command welfare advisor. There you go. <laughs> well, get, getting on to that, let's dive into what History Rage is about then. So you, you've come on here to get particularly pissed off about your particular subject. So, Grant, would you please kick off Series 7 by telling our pitchfork-wielding mob of History Rages what you wish people would just stop believing? I really wish... 
and this is niche, but I think the fact that it's something small means it's even more insidio- insidious because it's then even more widely believed. But Romanian <laughs> officers during World War One weren't all morally bankrupt, makeup-wearing fops. Now, that is niche. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's like PhD niche, is that? But the thing is, if you read a book about the Eastern Front, you will almost certainly hear about this. Uh, and it's, it's something why I, I began by studying World War II, but to start that, I was like, oh, I have to look at, let's look at the stereotypes of Romania. And so I had to go back, look at deeper stereotypes, mm-hmm. as well as, you know, kind of more recent, like World War I. Like a lot of these things about World War I affect World War II. And I came across this, and at first I was kind of like, maybe... But the more I've looked at it, the more it just pisses me off that this continues to be repeated by even very great historians. Major historians continue to repeat this bullcrap. <laughs> well, I have to confess, I'm, I'm a complete newcomer to this. Now, there's, there, there's two good reasons for that. If there are two things in history I have avoided studying... It is World War One and <laughs> Romania. So, so this is almost a perfect storm of the meeting of the two. So where does this myth come from? So I think there's... Don't say Romania. No, I think there's an easy, like... Okay, there's an easy answer and there's a more complex answer. So the easy we'll answer is uh, there's a book by a historian, Norman Stone, from 1975 called The Eastern Front... Uh, that this is where this myth basically comes from. Like, if this is where most people are getting it from. Um, and he says, you know, quote, all foreigners noted the uh, incidents of what was delicately known as immorality. Indeed, the among the first prescriptions on mobilization was a, a charge that only officers above the rank of major had the right to use makeup. End quote. And if you read through the rest of that, <laughs> he uses the word immorality like three or four more times, you know, just bashes on the Romanian army repeatedly, especially in this and bringing up this idea that one of the first orders is that, oh, hey, whoa, whoa we're wearing way too much makeup. Only the top officers get to do that, you yeah. know, and it's so that's kind of the and if you look, he doesn't cite anything for this part of the paragraph. He cites other things, but he doesn't tell you where this comes from. So the more complex, though, this is what everyone re- kind of repeats. But if you get into it, there are some period uh, accounts, uh, mostly by again by foreigners, and I think often like Anglophone, you know, British um, people there you know, who go to Romania and have some kind of brief contact, and they report about this idea that the Romanians are just completely all the officers are decked out to the nines or heavily using uh, perfume is another aspect here. They've got makeup. Mm-hmm. Even Jovis, Josephine Baker, after World War One, she visits Romania in the 1920s and she claims that the officers just, their their makeup is just the best. You know, it's flawless. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and wow. it's, but that's the thing. It's always foreigners and even, uh, in a, you know, Stone's a quote that I read he says foreigners say this stuff, and no, I want to yeah. take umbrage. It's all foreigners because I've recent, I've read a lot of of stuff on World War One. It's kind of background for my World War Two research, including mm. uh, uh, a memoir by like an American doctor who ended up in Romania 
or a, a French uh, officer who's with like, the military mission there, and they don't mention this. Um, and so it's interesting. That, so A, all accounts don't claim this. And B, I'm sure this is bullshit. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah. bull, bull crap. <laughs> it's just, there, there is, and this goes back to like, why are people saying this? And that's kind of the even more complex uh, issue is that there are these stereotypes about Romania specifically, A, about the Balkans, right? You know, mm-hmm. there's this idea of, especially back in this period, an English diplomat could say something was typically Balkan, right? And that means that's a synonym for unreliable, lethargy, corrupt, irresponsible, you know, mismanagement. Like, it's just this idea of the Balkans as this corrupt, broken down system. It comes out from this idea of the odd of Turkey in Europe, basically, right? That the Balkans mm. once were controlled by the Ottomans and they have that kind of oriental culture that's left over. Um, and then you add it off. And so on top of that, for the Romanians, you know, Romania, they're a romance language, right? They, they, they aren't a Slavic group. Um, they speak, a, they speak a romance language. And so, there's this added idea of Latin affinity, you know, and of this mm. kind of Latin decadence, right? Especially of the time, this the ideas about French culture being decadent. So you have this Balkan corruption stereotype mixed with this Latin decadence, right? That kind of come together and create this uh, stereotype of the Romanians as kind of the the or corrupt, immoral people. Especially the elite, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. How it's kind of specifically talking yeah, about yeah. the remaining elite as being this, this kind of completely lacking in morals, you know, sleeping around, prostituting their children and wives. The officers being completely, and then in the military context, you know, of course these guys can't make good officers. They're just a bunch of fops who care more about what they look like and you know getting themselves tarted up rather than yeah studying war and leading men in battle well we're no stranger to fop officers in britain you know we have got hundreds of years of powdered periwigs and uh, and ahoy you know it's, it's easy to see how we can look back on that and look down on our previous military and then we can look wider out there and go yeah and they're wearing makeup they must be wrongans and this is just, this is a, I mean, I know we'll come to the specifics of this later, but that that's the thing that's just kept going. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing is, I've seen no proof of any of this. I mean, I've read a lot of Romanian sources and none of the Romanian sources mention this. And Romanian uh, civilians are often very critical of the army, right? There are socialist newspapers and in the interwar period, the army gets attacked and can criticize. And then especially... During communism, the communists loved, they made whole movies using old, um, kind of royal era plays that would, that mocked the bourgeoisie, right? And they made movies and emphasized mm. this and kind of the corruption and immorality and silliness of the old capitalist bourgeoisie, you know, the large land holding middle class. Like, if this was a, like, a major thing that actually happened, like, the officers actually wore this stuff. You would see it in like kind of the cultural memory in Romania. It's really I, I've never kind of encountered it. And I actually had a friend, I was kind of putting out some feelers in preparation for this, and he sent me um some army orders from nineteen thirteen, right? And this is during this in between the second Balkan War and the Third Balkan War. So you have a lot of Romanian soldiers have been mobilized, they haven't yet joined, 
And they're, the army's complaining, basically, that there's all kinds of uniform regulations being, you know, broken. You know, they're like, oh, mm. you aren't wearing the right sword, or you're wearing civilian clothes, or non-regulation jackets, or this and that. Out of, like, a couple, like a dozen or two dozen, and you know, things they're pointing out, there's one that talks about kind of hygiene or, like, kind of, and it's about your hair. And, you know, them having too long of hair, right? Not a military cut. Yeah. And not shaving enough. They're, they're getting there like they're getting all hairy and they're looking disheveled. Yeah. There's nothing about makeup, scents, corsets is another aspect of this. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the, the opposite. Yeah, nobody in the military is going, you know, that blusher doesn't go with that room, so <laughs> I think. It's, and, it's just not that. And you can just look at the the the, the, the photographs of the generals, right? Because that order is supposedly saying only those above, right? So lieutenant colonels and colonels and generals, they're the ones who can wear makeup. Well, you look at pictures of those guys and, you know, Avarescu, uh, you know, uh, Prezan, Dragolina, some of them look like they've got, like, tired. They're, like, got rings under their eyes, but that's from fighting a war, right? They don't, like, there's not, like, this evident of, like, rouge makeup, you know, that you can, <laughs> at least that I can be able to tell. Maybe some you know, cosmetics historian can go in there and be like, well, you're totally wrong. But, and I, you don't, you don't, I don't even lower down. Like you should find some photos of, you know, if they're having to put a regulation saying, don't do this, then everybody, you know, majors and captains and lieutenants should be doing this. And you should, some photos should come out. Right. And I've looked through photo albums, you know, that have been put together. I've never seen anything that to me looks like, Oh yeah, there he is. Here's the Romanian officer just you know, completely decked to the nines and, Makeup, you know, has all the makeup you know, going for him, and just out for ready to go out in the town. It just, I haven't seen any proof that this is true at all. Can we zoom out a little bit and just talk about where does Romania itself fit in with the, with the First World War in particular? Um, the starters, whose side are they on, um, and how do they sort of fit in with the overall conflict? It's uh, it's interesting because this kind of adds into this idea of Romanian immorality and corruption and lack of morals is that initially they're technically part of the triple alliance, right? You know, of Germany, Austria, Hungary, and Italy. Romania is actually a silent member of that back to 1883. If I think, if I remember correct, correctly, and it's not announced. It's like, there's a supposed like, Ooh, it's locked away. This treaty is locked away in a secret vault. And, Mm -hmm. but I think everybody basically knew this. And this is, there's a really important reason for this, right? Romania found, you know, they had connections with the, the monarchy uh, to, the, you know, their monarch was a German, you know, kind of connects back. And they are able to not have to spend money on military um, expenses because they're part of this alliance. And Romania is a relatively poor country and it does have problems with corruption. But like the the civilians mm-hmm. don't want to spend the money. Right. And so if you and you're part of this alliance, you know, so that saves, you know, saves on having to have a large army which is going to have major effects because that means you're not training up lots of officers who then go into the reserves, right? You're not going to have a large pool of officers. And Romania, as like this poor agricultural country, it's that's coming, that's kind of trying to develop. It has a very small middle class. Uh, but that middle class is very much trying to be European, right? It's adopting the look, the style of, you know, you know Victorian and then Edwardian Europe, it's not going this whole mm-hmm. makeup, you know, Oriental look, right? They're trying to be Europeans. Um, you know, a lot of them will go live in Paris, you know, learn French, especially some of the ultra rich, 
but even the officer corps, they you know they're trained while they you know their best the, the Turin in Italy in Prussia, a lot of them go to France, right? So a lot of their up you know kind of the military elite are getting advanced military education in the West. Um, but so they're technically part of the Triple Alliance, which means when the war starts, they opt for neutrality, just like Italy does famously, right? That hey, this isn't a defensive war. We're not going to get involved. And so for the next two years, there's basically the similar to Italy where there's a debate between neutrality or do we join with the Entente, right? We want to, because they have this idea of, you know, also participating in the dismemberment of Austria-Hungary and taking Transylvania, which is seen as a, a Romanian land. Yeah. So they finally come in in 1916 on the side of the Entente. So right there you have... Oh, they didn't join the Germans. No, now they're joining the Entente just because they can grab land. So this is kind of building on this idea, right, in the West of mm. these Romanians are just opportunist calculating. And there's a certain amount of reality to that. But at the same time, right, like if they're going to get involved in this nasty, terrible war, right, they've got to get something out of it. And this, you know, uh, part of Austria-Hungary, Transylvania, that was kind of price of admission mm. but yeah so they come in on side of the entente and it's it's interesting because you just see that the Romanian army is so unprepared uh like i said they haven't invested in their army for decades uh very much it's like not until like 1905 that the regular army starts expanding to over a hundred thousand men and then in 1916 they're going to mobilize eight hundred thousand men right with about 550 in the operational army so like you're going to see, so like in a few short years, that's a massive number of men to mobilize. It's something like 30% yeah. of the male population. And you just, they don't have the officers to do that, number one. And especially like even t well-trained regular officers and then even less, even with adding reservists, you still don't have enough. Uh, there was a general right before the war goes off, Avarescu, uh, uh, General Avarescu, talking to the prime minister saying like, really, we should only be able to mobilize 15 divisions, you know, with, you know, trained men, with equipment, you know, properly kitted out, everything like that. Mm -hmm. it, Romania goes to war with 23 infantry divisions, two cavalry divisions, uh, plus a bunch more, you know, uh, five more cavalry and eight mixed brigades. So, I mean, this is, they've kind of really stretched things. And you have to know that this army doesn't have many machine guns. It's short on artillery, especially the heavy artillery you're going to need you know, in the First mm -hmm. World War kind of combat. They could, they did as much as they could, but the Allies need their you know, weapons for themselves. And Romania, the only way you can get any weapons to them is by going up and over Scandinavia, then training everything through Russia down to the Romanian border. And no one, but and even then, while Romania is neutral, no one wants to sell them any weapons because who knows if they're going to go on which side, right? If the Germans sell yeah. them weapons... It can be used against them. Same thing with the Allies, right? So, like, Romania, even if it wants to, it can't arm itself before going. And it has no... It's an agricultural economy um, that's focused on kind of extracting out grain, um, oil, um, which are kind of then uh, pushed to the Western markets. So that's where they make their money. Yeah. So, like, I'm, I'm, trying, to add, I'm trying to point out here, there's just... There's a lot yeah. of big systemic issues here other than the officers were all immoral... And concerned about their yeah. makeup. <laughs> yeah, they have bigger problems than than officers wearing makeup. That sounds of things. If the Romanians have joined in on the side of the Entente, 
I mean, geographically, they're all the way over there. Who do they do most of their fighting against? Initially, it's Austria-Hungary, and Romania only declares war initially against Austria-Hungary. They don't declare it against Germany. They're hoping Bulgaria, which is part of the Central Powers, will remain active, inactive, or that the Salonika Front, you know, under the Army de, de Orient, you know, of, of Sarai or Sarel, was going to kind of neutralize Bulgaria somehow by like a show of force. Um, mm. So they kind of hope to recreate the uh, Balkan War of. 1913, when they just basically march unopposed into the rear of Bulgaria, as Bulgaria is getting attacked by Greece and uh, Serbia, and Romania just declares war, starts marching on Sofia. The Bulgarians have to, you know, surrender. That's it. You know, the worst they do is have to fight some typhus, you know, in the army or no cholera, cholera. So the whole all hope is that you know Romania joining in. And the Allies believe this, right? This is part of the whole, you know, kind of British and French, especially French are pushing this, hope that just by throwing in one new front, Austria-Hungary will collapse. If you knock that out, then Germany is going to be isolated. And, yeah. you know, then we can win on the Western Front. That you know, And so there's this hope that even though the Romanian army, that everyone knows is not really prepared for what's going to, what, what it's going to do, right, can just kind of knock Austria-Hungary out. But... The Romanians, they don't have enough weapons. They're funneled through these mountain passes that the Austro-Hungarians are able to slow them down. And then most importantly, the Bulgarians jump in. Um, they have, they, there's a major defeat on the Danube. There's a fortress called Tortakaya, which falls very quickly because it was poorly organized. Um, kind of all the worst, you know, aspects of Romanian military organization is exposed. And the Germans then send a, just a bunch of artillery down there. So you have a few Germans with some heavy artillery plus a lot of Bulgarian infantry and cavalry. And they start running amok. And that causes Romania to have to kind of shift. Like, oh crap, we got this whole you know front down in the south we have to deal with. And that gives the Germans time to form another army up in Transylvania and really then eventually break through. You have Rommel. He famously writes about this in his book. Um, and they break through and overrun. Kind of just completely, the Romanian army collapses. Um, in like the fall of, uh, you know, kind of September, like October. And by December, early mm. December, the Germans are marching into Bucharest. And the remnants of the Romanian army, something only, there's only like a third of the Romanian army that come, that escapes, that isn't captured or killed, that re- withdraws with the, uh, the government from Bucharest. The government goes, relocates to Yash in, and holds off part of, of, uh, Romania, the eastern part, Moldova, or Moldavia. With the help of yep. hundreds of thousands of Russian troops. And that's what stabilizes the front, that plus the winter, while the Germans pour over and seize Wallachia, which has all this grain and oil fields and uh, you know, other important you know, resources that the Germans really need at that point. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. 
Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Would it be fair to say then that Romania doesn't particularly perform that well in World War I then? Initially. So the 1916 campaign is, is a catastrophe. But over the winter and into the spring, the Romanian army, what's left of it, and they actually start mobilizing more men despite um, a typhus pandemic in this overcrowded, uh, unoccupied zone in Moldavia. The French start sending weapons. They send a major uh, military mission. Uh, you have a bunch of Russians that although the Russian infantry are more and more likely not to fight. And you have the um, the March Revolution in 1917. The Southern Army has done the best. It's been fighting against the Austrian. Its, mo- its morale is the best. And the especially the Russian artillery, they're willing to keep shooting artillery, right? And that kind of bulks up the Romanians. And the Romanians start getting, like, French, you know, uh, machine guns, the French-style uniforms, like the, the Adrian helmets. They have uh, French aircraft, even French pilots and NCOs. They come to train the, the Romanian officers who then retrain their um, soldiers. The Romanians form a mountain corps, which they didn't have, which... Really would have been nice fighting Rommel in those mountains of Carpathia. Yeah. <laughs> and so they form one like after the fact, but you know, it's kind of have. And so in 1917, you have the whole, the, the infamous Crencia offensive where the Russians, you know, the revolutionary, you know, kind of social democratic government tries to have a, a go at having an offensive showing that they're still in the war and it fails everywhere except with the Romanians. The Romanians are actually able to push through, uh, make some advances and the battle called Moresht. Unfortunately, the Russians, the rest of the, the the Russian front doesn't move forward. The Romanians kind of have to call it off. And then the Germans, they decide we're going to knock out Romania. And this is a mixed Austro-German-Bulgarian-Turkish force. But it's, it's kind of the German army and the Austro-Hungarian army doing most of the heavy lifting. But you have the Bulgarians in the south. Mm-hmm. And they make this attempt to defeat Romania in, outright, to just completely knock it out, just like they did with Serbia. You know, earlier on in 1915, they want to do the same thing with Romania in 1917. And so there's a couple huge summer clashes in 1917. And the Romanians stand firm. They've been retrained. Their officers have gained experience at great cost by, you know, this catastrophe and all these soldiers lost earlier. Morale's kind of, you know, rather than having an offensive war where the soldiers were kind of like, okay, do we really care about Transylvania? These soldiers are now fighting for, you know, their homes. You know, and there's more you know, mm. ideology. There's kind of kind of getting in, in mixed in. The Romanian army is getting better at explaining what they're fighting for. Um, a lot of different things kind of come together. So the Romanian army actually holds that, and the Germans can't knock them out. And they uh, eventually, Romania has to sign a peace because the Russian army collapses completely, and the, they they get caught what they call the Triangle of Death. Right, that they're yeah. in this little pocket kind of of Moldavia and part of like you know western Ukra- west southwestern Ukraine that the Germans can just go around and cut off all the supply lines because the Russians are running and then they make a treaty. So Romania has to sign a you know an armistice and then a peace treaty with. But there's this kind of 1917 battle. So the Romanian army shows 
hey, it's competent, it's regained itself, and then it rejoins the war. Right before the armistice on the Western Front, Romania quickly like redeclares war and then jumps back in. And then there's a second war in 1919 against the Hungary, where Romania goes and defeats this emergent Hungarian Republic, a Bolshevik Republic, and occupies Budapest. So the Romanian army, yeah, it, it performs terribly in 1916. But by 1919, it's actually learned a lot, been rearmed, and its officers are doing a good job, mm. right? I mean, these aren't the same. They have more experience. They've figured out things. They've learned. And there's, their men are more motivated and better trained and equipped. To tie in with what we were talking about earlier, um, how does this myth of the decadent, corrupt Romanian elite um, get used by the German occupation when they're occupying uh, half of Romania from 1916 onwards. Yeah, I mean, it's it's important for the Germans, right, to kind of justify their occupation. And there's a, yeah. uh, there's some really interesting research that's come out. And so they start also using this idea that, hey, there's hey, Romania that's ruled by this corrupt elite, right? But the peasants, right, and we kind of talked about this earlier, but the peasantry is redeemable, that they're kind of superstitious, maybe backwards, but they're hardworking and under the right management, aka Teutonic mm-hmm. Prussian, <laughs> you know, management, we'll get something out of these people, right? And so, although it's interesting that the Germans kind of, because of they find they actually find some Romanian elites. There's a significant number of them who are conservative and pro-German, like conservative capital C, like the Conservative Party. In yeah. Romania, they were they looked to Germany. They didn't really look to France. They weren't liberals. They looked to uh, Germany, and so like they actually find collaborators who are willing to work with them. And so they kind of have to. Well, actually, some of these guys are okay, and Romania is kind of more of this <laughs> modernizing country. It's not completely Balkan and backwards, and you know that's the people. The, you know the the corrupt ones are all in Yash, but the ones in Bucharest still who stay to collaborate. You know, we're gonna we can work with them, and this is really important because, you know, Romania. This this is its. You know, everyone in any World War One history you read has to talk about this moment because occupying Wallachia, getting that grain is what saves the central powers because you have the turn up winter in in sixteen seventeen when they're literally close to starving to death, and all this not just grain but other food products being pulled out of mm-hmm. Romania, right. Uh, are really important. And plus, you have the oil, and that's really important to what? Mm-hmm. Unrestricted submarine warfare, right? Yep. Which is yeah the last card in the deck, strategic card in the deck. You know, so, and they actually have to choose, like, do we process the oil quickly to get diesel, or do we and lose this ability to make kerosene? So it's either diesel for your subs or kerosene for farmers in Germany so they can work longer days to produce food. Right. So like the oil and so like, and so these resources and even the manpower, they like literally have forced labor in Romania. And so like, even though they're like talking about how the peasantry or if, you know, you know, they're good. They basically like throw the peasantry under the bus and collaborate with the supposed decadent Romanian elite to get as much as they can out of Romania to fuel the German war machine to try to do this one last bid in, yeah. you know, of winning the war in the West. Okay, so how did Romania signing that 
sort of armistice that peace treaty with the central powers then go forward to to affect this myth i think it really reinforces it right because once again right romania betrays germany by not coming in in 1914 right then it's opportunistic in 1916 mm-hmm. right then it, ha- then it switches sides this is usually how it's kind of mockingly depicted right and abandons the entente they don't fight to the end like literally just you know uselessly be surrounded and destroyed right <laughs> and so you get this idea and there's this joke it's probably maybe not one you've heard but that romania is the only country to have switched sides in both world wars right so it's tied to 1944 when romania switches sides from the axis powers to to the allies which is a grass gross gross like miss uh, uh representation of what's happening but that's the idea so right. once again these decadent immoral romanian elites they're just it, they they're just flowing with the wind you know they're in it for themselves they have no kind of ideological backbone they don't really care about what's going on you know they'll switch sides they can't be trusted and so it kind of feeds in to this myth of you know this the decadent romanian officer corps that you know, uh, and then affects things in the Second World War um, and how the Germans treat them and kind of maybe more importantly, how we remember also the Second World War and Romania's participation in it. Okay, so that brings me neatly into kind of the the last question then. So how how does that myth continue into the Second World War? How do the various countries and powers that are fighting that European conflict use you know, that myth, that stereotype, that view of Romania. Yeah, so interestingly, there's not many more claims about mascara and corsets and and uh, perfume about Romanian officers mm-hmm. in the Second World War. I, someone recently, recently told me they'd heard like a, a Polish refugee in 39 claimed that the Romanian soldiers were all, you know, dolled up and ready to go. But... Really, I've, I, that was the first time I'd heard this, you know, in all of my research. Yeah. It's it's not part of it, but that bigger myth of the Romanian elite kind of being corrupt, too French, you know, completely immoral is there. I mean, there's table talk from Hitler. Uh, I think I have, let me, I think I have a quote here, uh, you know, not to quote Hitler or anything, um, but we are. <laughs> Um, well, <laughs> quote him without agreeing with him, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it is doable. Yep. It's just it's what, it's what they thought at the time. Uh, he says, quote, there is nothing in Romania, including the officers, that couldn't be bought. End quote. And he goes on to then say mm. that the officers will prostitute their wives and daughters in order to get a promotion. Right. So that is the same basic idea, right, of these are just dirty these elites are and you have the same german claim of like oh the romanian soldier if you go read manstein's memoirs he's like the romanian officer corps eh, like they were good allies they weren't as good as us their ncos were terrible but the romanian soldier was hardy and you know hard you know willing willing to put up with a lot and uh you know under proper Mm. management under the proper officer, that phrase again. Once again, the Teutonic Prussian, and it was used by the Germans to try to like steal control, right, operational control of Romanian armies and corps from the Romanians and put a German in charge, right, during the war. So like yeah. they kind of used that kind of myth 
to reinforce their claims of the Remain officers, they're just not good enough. You know, they're too corrupt. They're not trial. But if we control these soldiers, we can get a lot out of them. And so I think, you know, like, and I mentioned already this idea of 1944, right? That Romania is, you know, is beaten to submission. The Red Army is overrunning it. A small coup declares an armistice, kind of deposes the dictator, Marshal Antonescu, the royal coup of King mm-hmm. Mike, Mihai the first. He takes over and he has to for- he's forced to sign an armistice with the Soviets. He's brave in being willing to do this. But the armistice forces Romania to provide troops. So he declared like he declared peace, King Michael or King Mihai. The Soviets are like, no, you're going to provide us troops and you're going to keep fighting. So it's a coerced alliance, right? The, the Romania's it doesn't just switch yeah. sides because you know that's how Romanians are and they're corrupt and they sway with the wind. It's like they've been occupied and part of the armistice was you have to provide us soldiers. But once again, it's simplified, and this idea of Romanians, their main officer, just com- being completely useless and immoral, and you know that's the, and that and that's the reason for the poor performance, rather than lacking industry, not having tanks, you know, anti-tank weapons. Germany can't provide all those things to them. Everything's about kind of will and motivation, where the Germans just say, "Oh, the officers are all French lovers," and of course they don't want us to win the mm-hmm. war. It's like these officers, Romanian officers are more like the Vichy French, right? They hate Jews. They hate communism. You know, they murder, they participate in the murder of, you know, of tens of thousands of Jews on their own volition. Romania kills uh, 300,000 Jews in 19, you know, over the course of world war two of its own vo- volition. And so you don't have an officer corps that supports that. Right, you don't have Einsatzgruppen, you don't have special SS task forces that are going behind the lines doing this. It's Romanian cavalry, like regular units that are murdering Jews yeah. in reconquered territory, and so which goes to show there's more ideological motivation there than none, which is basically what the Germans, who really inform all those German generals, wrote all their memoirs. That's what comes into English, you know, from the fifties. And dominates this idea of today, even today, of Romania being kind of just, you know, jumping into the war because it has to, not really caring, not being, the soldiers not really wanting to be there. When really, these officers are fairly well trained and their soldiers are motivated by nationalism, religion, anti-Semitism, and anti-communism to fight alongside. So, and I think, you know, we can, you know... But we, I think we can see why this idea of the Romanians wearing makeup is so popular. I'll do kind of one more quick reading just to explain this and why people keep yeah. mentioning it. And this is from... Well, I was going to ask, actually, because they're saying there, we can see why Hitler uses this myth. We can see why, you know, all the other World War One powers and so forth, we use... We, there is an advantage to them to putting this idea out there. Why the hell are we still hearing it now? You know, I think the simple reason is it's fun. It's color for books. Yeah. Um, so if we look at um, Margaret Macmillan in 1919 about the Paris Peace Conference, this is what she says. The Romanians themselves are the Neapolitans of Central Europe. Both sexes love strong scents. Among the upper classes, women made up heavily and the men rather more discreetly. 
But even so, the military authorities had to restrict the use of cosmetics to officers above a certain rank. Even after Romania entered the war, foreign observers were scandalized to see officers strolling about with painted faces soliciting prostitutes or one another. Noisy, effusive, melodramatic, fond of quarreling, Romanians of all ranks threw themselves into their pastimes with passionate and enthusiasm. And I'll stop there, but it goes on. But I can think we can see why this myth yeah. is stable. That's great color, right? Yeah, and, we can, we can yeah. picture that. You know? Yeah, although I was thinking it sounds a bit like the Greeks. Yeah, I... uh, steady, steady on. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I think it's like the idea, once again, she connects it, Neapolitans, right? The Italians, which there's also mm. these idea of the Italians in World War One and World War Two, kind of, you know, being completely useless and fun-loving. There's this, this ridiculous idea of like the Captain Cornelian mandolin or whatever, where it's just like, oh, we Italians, we, you know, like we're uh, alo alo, right? You know, where yeah. the Italians yeah. are just, yeah. you know, lover boys, completely incompetent. It's very similar. It's very much this kind of, I don't want to say British, but it's, it's kind of Northern European view towards Southern Europe as being kind of lackadaisical, right? And the Romanian ones kind of got this Balkan thing tied into it. But it's very similar to what's, you know, the portrayal of Italians, you know, that they're just completely useless, even though, like, hey, Rommel, like, most your army, like, for Italians, right? And some of your best units that, you know, were Italian, like. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Say what you like about the Romanians, Nazis, but they're on your side. You chose them. Yeah. And it's interesting. One of the things I've kind of revealed from my research is that they're the, the Germans realize at first they completely discount the Romanians and then the Romanians fight really well and they go really far and they contribute a lot. Uh, they help conquer Crimea, right? Southern Ukraine, Crimea, you know, of course, it, you know, they go into the Caucasus. And so the Romanians actually become recognized as the way I put it was first among unequals, right? The Germans hate mm-hmm. all their allies. They think all of their allies are rubbish but the Romanians are a little, are the best, right? They're the least worse of yeah, all of them. They're slightly, yeah. And so here is Romania, less less bad than Italy. Yes, and there's literally quotes yeah. like that from German commanders, where it's like, yeah, you know, the Romanians, you know, they they're in on this, and part of that is because yeah. the Romanians were also in on the whole war of annihilation. They were murdering Jews, like they got yeah. in on the whole Judeo Bolshevism must be destroyed. And the Romanians, like, they, especially in 1942, I mean, even 41, but by 42, you have, the Romanian army has got experience now. It's fairly well equipped. Germans know how to collaborate with them. Um, of course, Stalingrad, they become a scapegoat. And that kind of then repeats this whole thing of the Romanians being unreliable. Mm. But really, like, the Germans do get to the point where they're saying, yeah, the Romanians, they're the best of our terrible allies. Yeah, I suppose if you once Stalingrad happens, it's it it's Hitler's thing to to go and seek blame, and he's not going to blame his proud army of uh, Aryan supermensch, not when there's a convenient scapegoat-ridden country like Romania that's the, that's fighting the Russians. It's going to be all them. Isn't yeah, it? I mean, officially, like the he fires a couple officer, like a couple generals who were critical of the Romanians. Um, so officially the Germans try to like pack things. And this is once again, proof of 
how important the Romanians are. Because they stay in the they stay in from forty one to forty four. After Stalingrad, they keep they still have troops, uh, several corps in the field. Whereas the Hungarians and the Italians pull out all their troops basically. So like the Romanian like military contribution is just as important to the Nazis as the oil, which is what everyone focuses on. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, but yeah, behind the scenes, Hitler in private attacks. Romania, Hungarians, Italians, and blames them for Stalingrad. And the propaganda. And even, like, you don't really need the propaganda. A lot of the Germans are already, like, they have this racial mindset. They already have these built-in stereotypes about the Romanians. So when everything, you know, when the crap hits the fan and everyone everything goes terrible at the, on the Volga, they know who to point the finger at, right? The Romanians, the Hungarians, yeah. the Italians. It's not us. It's not our fault. It's mm. not our commanders, even though it's definitely their fault. Well, thank you very much for that, Grant, because that's opened up a whole avenue of military history. Um, We've covered some forgotten wars and some forgotten conflicts in our time, but this was, as ever, a new one. So so thank you very much for bringing Romania into the light. Hey, that is my mission in life. You know, by by day I work for the army. By night, I'm all about Romania. And I just trying to get the word out there that there's a bit more going on than... You know, made up sold, made up officers from World War One, or you know, panicked is Romanian soldiers in World War Two. There's a lot more going on there than those two images. Well, well, thank you. If you'd like to know more, ladies and gentlemen, then you can start with Grant's excellent book on Romania in World War Two, uh, Romania's Holy War, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes. And you can follow him on Twitter at G Harwood. Um, I wish we had more time to go into a massive deep dive on Romanian history because it's just it's opened a Pandora's box of uh, of just fascination uh, for me there. So I'll be diving in and getting the book. Mm. Oh, thank you very much. You're welcome. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. You can follow us on Twitter at History Rage or individually. I am at Paul Bavel. And I'm at Kyle G History. And if you're enjoying History Rage, then please consider joining the Angry Mob on Patreon, as this really helps us meet the cost of podcasting. Your £5 per month will get you into early episodes, entry into all of our prize draws, the invite to put questions to future guests, and the coveted History Rage mug. And you can subscribe at patreon.com forward slash History Rage. But thank you very much for coming back for Series 7. Until next week, stay angry. Bye-bye. Bye.